electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deidre Bosa. Today, stocks continuing their ride lower this week with almost half of the NASDAQ now sitting at 50% or more below their 52-week highs. So what's the outlook from here? We will discuss. Plus, some new friends for Facebook. A breakdown of Wall Street's bull case for Meta. As shares sit, well, you guessed it, 50% off of their highs. And finally, Cisco putting pressure on the software space, but with private equity circling the waters, could low valuations for some of the smaller names be a good thing? The top takeover targets, perhaps, to keep an eye on later this hour, Dee. John, we're going to kick off today's feed with a check on the NASDAQ. It is moving slightly higher after yesterday's just brutal 4% retreat. A number of software names under pressure, though, following Cisco's poor results. We're going to have more on that in just a moment. First, let's get to senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down where we stand halfway through the day, Mike. Yeah, uh, D, we're kind of hesitating, I guess you might call it, in the NASDAQ at around that minus 30% level, down 30% from the highs, just very slightly above where we did bottom out last Thursday. If you look at a couple-year chart here, uh, here you have actually going back five years, the NASDAQ composite along with a 500-day or 100-week moving average. So this is basically the average price over almost two years. Very slow-moving supply and demand indicator. I wanted to point out just how far below it we are here. In fact, we're great, a greater percentage below it than we were in the, um, the plunge in 2020, as well as the uh, deep sell-off back in late 2018. However, we were also farther above it here than we were at those peaks. So everything, whether you look at valuation or technicals, it's, yes, this has been a a very deep cut. This is a badly broken trend, but you're also just giving back a lot of the overshoot to the upside. That's basically what I would argue. Also, the three-year trailing return of the NASDAQ 100 right now is still over 17% annualized, right? When you had those previous lows, you got down to like 9 or 13% annualized. The point being, you've built up a lot of profits that are being taken in an aggressive way right now. Apple, uh, you see, uh, I was going to show Apple basically is just threatening that same 100 week moving average. It's in around the 136 area. So this has obviously been the stalwart, the one that's held up better. Uh, and the, the idea is when you sell your favorites is maybe when uh, sort of a sell off is culminating and it's to some degree happening here with Apple, Carl. Uh, Mike, appreciate that. Mike Santoli uh, gives us a good starting point to talk more about volatility and how much longer uh, the markets are bracing for turbulence. Our next guest has been following those trends and says that even though 77 percent of Q1 results posted positive EPS, the number of names slashing their guidance is surging, obviously. Wells Fargo chairman of Global Internet Investment Banking, Bob Peck, joins us today. Bob, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I'm looking forward to the day where I can actually be back there on the set. Yeah, it'll happen soon. We had Cisco's Chuck Robbins here today, so uh, the invitation's always there. Talk to me about where you think guidance is headed, whether or not um, earnings estimates are truly behind the curve. And after we've done a lot of wood chopping on evaluation, whether the E yeah. is, now, is now suspect. 
Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting year for sure. I mean, you've had the NASDAQ down almost 30% from the highs and S&P 18, 19% as well. What I think is interesting is when you look at the component of that with the S&P, with FANG or the top seven stocks being having such a heavy weighting, they're down over 30%, right? So that's really weighing just on the indices. And therefore, the remaining stocks are only down 12, 14%. So what's driving that right now? By, by far and away, number one has has been multiple, right? So you've really seen valuations come back down here. In tech, for existence, for example, you had uh, uh, EV to revenue multiples, you know, north of double digits, somewhere around 12, 14 times revenues, right? You've now seen that pull down to sort of mid single digits or so. And even in some of the sub examples with software being much higher than that, close to 20 times revenues coming down to double digits and FinTech even higher, right? So you've really seen some contraction in the multiples. But to your point on the question of estimates, yeah, so you saw over three quarters of Q1 reports come in and revenues and earnings were beaten. Um, the problem was there was a two to one uh, taking down of guidance, particularly on the EPS side of things, as companies struggled with supply chains, inflation, war impacts. And I think that's right now what's leaving the question is what is the true E going forward? You see the S&P at an 18 times PE and investors are trying to wonder, OK, but how solid is that E going forward? And could the PE be actually be a little bit higher? Right. I wonder, you, you, you list out there have been a number of concerns about inflation, uh, volatility, China, Russia. I mean, it seems like there's a long runway between where we are right now and the period in which clients come to you with cash and are interested in bolt-on M&A, for example, in the Internet space. Uh, does that feel like it's a ways off? Yeah, M&A is tremendous. So as you know, we're coming off of the record year of all time with $6 trillion of M&A done globally last year. As you look at us this year, year to date, so just sort of through April, we're down about 20% from last year. But last year's was all time records. In fact, if you actually look at us year to date versus the prior 10, 15 years, we're on track to number three, number four sort of top year. So M&A looks like it should be very strong this year. And it's partially driven by the valuations coming down as we spoke about. It's also partially driven by the amount of cash. So if you just look at the sponsors, the private equity players, they have over 800 billion of cash just waiting to be uh, put to use. And even if you look at the SPACs, they have over $600 billion of capital trying to be put to use. So you're talking about $1.5 trillion or so of cash on the sidelines looking to take advantage of you know, some of the fallen prices and multiples here in the market. Uh, hey, Bob, it's John. Um, good to see you again. So maybe put the tech landscape in the context of some of the news that we've seen this week uh, out of the likes of Walmart and Target, who are big technology customers. Now, the promise of the digital investments that they've been making these logistics investments over the past few years is that they're going to both expand the customer base and drive loyalty, right? Which seems to me like why they're eating some of these costs now and not raising prices. But we're about to find out, aren't we, in this inflationary and possibly recessionary environment, which technology is actually worth it for them pursuing those aims? Because this would be the first recession of the smartphone and cloud era, right? Absolutely. It's a really good point, a really great question. And I think when you think about just the offline names versus just the online names, you're really having that meeting in the middle, more of omnichannel is ultimately where all this is going. And I think I take it back to you know what Jeff Bezos used to say and his sort of mantra, what's most important, right? So price, selection, and convenience for that customer. How easy can you make the experience for them, whether it be purchasing the item, returning the item, and obviously being able to have a good price on a vast selection. So um, I think at the end of the 
the day, what you're going to see is hybrid. Our omni-channel is ultimately the wave of the future. And whoever can handle the customer and be most customer-obsessed is set for a good win. So are there metrics that you're watching um, just across the whole industry? I'm not going to ask you, of course, about particular companies that are going to indicate who's actually delivering from a software perspective, particularly from an Internet service perspective, on that promise, both on the sort of cost side uh, in making these customers more efficient, and then on the targeting side, helping them more efficiently acquire customers in a tough environment? Yeah, you know, we, we look at things as, uh, as far as size of baskets, repeat purchases, number of purchases, where you can see the consumer uptaking the service uh, even more so. And then on the tech enablement side of things, the companies that are empowering the things we just talked about, the ease and reach of consumer, being able to find those consumer with strong unit economics, so great long-term value to customer acquisition costs, um, being able to do that in a strong ROA for the ROI for the, uh, for the e-commerce provider is really important. So we, we look at all of that. And what you're seeing right now is sort of this new wave of optionality, whether it be the Shopify's of the world or AWS's of the world that are providing these services that um, you know, these, these retailers can take up and reach more consumers in an efficient way. Hey, Bob, it's Steve. Uh, good morning. Walmart and Target, that was sort of the story yesterday weighing on markets. And today, Cisco's guidance is giving investors pause. Uh, it was interesting to hear Chuck Robbins telling the team today that they had that full quarter of China COVID lockdowns because of their timing when they report. And he actually anticipates a lot of congestion when they do open up again. Is that baked into earnings for other companies right now? Yeah, I, I saw those comments on your show, and um, I think it's one of the big things when we talk to our clients, the CEOs, they're very much trying to wonder how do we think about the supply chain going forward here, both on being able to get the product that you want, as well as any inflationary pressure on getting the product to be in the front of the, uh, the queue or the line there. So it very much is top of mind of all consumers. Therefore, for investors, they're looking at stories where maybe those types of long-term shipping products you know, aren't the issue, right? It's more locally sourced or digital products, what have you, that won't be as impacted. But it's definitely a question on investors' minds. And it's one that, you know, investors are thinking can last throughout the year. And Bob, as we look at the M&A outlook, you know, there's very different kinds of companies emerging right now. And investors are placing a higher value on ones with a decent cash pile. Do you think that some of the big ones, I'm thinking like an alphabet, can serve or preserve that cash? Or do you think they go out there and try to do more deals? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You have a whole bunch of different types of targets in the marketplace right now, especially as private companies have really started to adjust their view of what their valuation is. And maybe it's you know below the last round they did. And maybe M&A is actually their way out uh, or their next step. And so you start thinking about what valuation can be. And then you think about the mix. Is it cash the, these entrepreneurs would want or is it stock with a larger company where they can you know parlay that and run it with the stock? The other question for this for the large tech players, the Googles, the Amazon. Amazon's, the Microsoft's of the world is with the regulatory environment, you know, how much ability will they be able to move nimbly, mm -hmm. right? While yeah. maybe in the middle of the market, you can see companies have a little more flexibility and be able to bolt things on. But there's a lot of quote unquote fallen angels right now that you mm -hmm. can see larger companies take advantage of. Right. We'll be looking to you, Bob, uh, for the next uh, move in, in some of these chapters. Always good to start the hour with you. Thanks so much, Bob Peck. Thanks for having me. 
bared out with a call, adding Block to its list of fresh picks, arguing the company is a long-term large-cap tech winner with likely 20-25% revenue growth ahead. Joining us now, Baird analyst David Koning, who is also out with an interesting note on recession-resistant stocks. Uh, let's cover Block first. Uh, you say that it's the fintech trifecta, grows fast, it's profitable, has net cash. Um, is, this the be- is this the only player with those kinds of metrics? Um, and why do you think this is the one to bet on? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's a big cap stock. It's down significantly. A lot of the companies grow fast. They have net cash, but this one's profitable. And yesterday, they f- focused a lot of their investor day on how the incremental margins are very strong, and they're going to focus more and more on profitability over time. You know, you used to hear similar things about PayPal, especially that it had sort of this reach into other financial services. Is this a call against PayPal? Do you think that Block is sort of eating its lunch, or can both of those be good bets? Yeah, they do different things. But what's good about Block right now is they do a lot of in-person SMBs and inflation helps them right now. And as consumers go back to shopping in person, go to restaurants, services, et cetera, Block does really well. And econ, there's a little bit of a shift away right now of the mix. David, I think you're saying that Block is the only rapid growth fintech with a reasonable P.E. at 38 times 2024 consensus EPS. Why is 38 times reasonable? Well, given how fast it grows and kind of the what if scenario that they throw out there, there's so many ways that that they can grow over a long period of time. Um, You know, we've seen other companies, you know, traded high multiples too. MasterCard and Visa for years have held high multiples. Uh, Square or Block can probably grow faster for for a long period of time since they're so early still uh, in penetrating the TAM. So then how dependent uh, do investors need to think of Block as being on that top line growth? Uh, how, how much wiggle room do they have to still be reasonable if 38 times turns to 40, 45 times? Yeah, sure. And probably the biggest disappointment that some people had at the analyst day yesterday was they didn't give firm long-term revenue growth guidance. I mean, in our view, they need to do 20, 25% for several years to kind of uh, fundamentally uh, you know, grow into the, the multiple. But uh, you know, we think there's so much room uh, for growth left. David, thanks so much for your insights. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Coming up, we're breaking down the outlook for tech valuations, crypto, and more with longtime tech investor Tim Draper. That's next. Tech Check is just getting started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
time now for a gut check. We're going to look at Cisco. We talked about it earlier. It's more than 13 percent down on the heels of that big miss an EPS beat, but revenue came in under the consensus, and it was really the guidance that hit the company hard. The company is placing blame on China's COVID lockdowns and the war in Ukraine slashing their guidance for the full year. A dramatic change for the stock. The street is not liking what it is seeing. Citi, J.P. Morgan, Jefferies, Baird, and Loop all cutting their price targets. Shares are down double digits this morning. They are down about 33 percent year to date, John. Yeah. Well, leading the way through volatility, our next guest has weathered tech stock storms from the dot-com bubble burst to the most recent crypto crash and, and some others as well, where he remains a bull despite losing more than a quarter of a billion dollars reportedly worth of Bitcoin in the past two months. That's what Forbes says. Joining us now, venture capitalist and Draper Fisher Jurvetson founding partner, Tim Draper. Tim, good to see you again. Um, so what do you think? Are we heading into a recession? Well, first, thanks for having me on the show again, John. And um, and we, I think what's happening, it, it's, it seems very similar to the dot-com, um, uh, whatever, dot-bomb, uh, the bubble bursting, uh, where, where for about six months, uh, the stock market fell about uh, five, it, one day it'd be 5% down, then up 2%, 5% down, up 2%. And it, and it just slid for a long time. And, um, and it happened because um, it, a similar situation, but it wasn't inflation. Um, this time, it's inflation. It's a little more like 73, 74, uh, where uh, inflation was so high that the Fed had to, had to raise interest rates to get to a certain point and uh, it, where they could control the inflation. Um, <laughs> and I'm still a bull on Bitcoin because uh, it's a great hedge against inflation. And as the speculators leave, eventually it will, will diverge from the, uh, uh, the tech stocks. Well, how can you do, say it's a I do great believe tech stocks will continue down as long as the interest rates have to keep going up. Tim, how can you say it's a great hedge against inflation when it's <clears throat> down from the 60s to 29,000 in this inflationary environment. Almost anything else uh, except growth stocks seems like a better hedge against inflation so far. It's a, it's a long-term hedge against inflation. Um, it, Bitcoin's sort of a hedge against bad governance, too much regulation. Uh, it, it, it basically what it is, is it's, it represents to me, it represents freedom and, uh, and trust in that I um, am free to move Bitcoin around the world and I, am, and I have the trust of hundreds of thousands of uh, miners out there all, all watching over the blockchain, uh, where, oh. where governments are printing more money and, and there will be a moment there where I can buy my food, my clothing, and my shelter in Bitcoin and uh, and then there will be no need for a fiat currency, no, no desire for a currency that's controlled by a government or, a, or banks. So it's going to be an interesting Certainly, time. that's the promise. What you're laying out is the promise of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, <laughs> an inflation hedge, these libertarian ideals. But it's been 13 years. Even the experiment in El Salvador hasn't worked out the way that bulls thought it would. Uh, used for a very I just met with those guys in El Salvador. I just met with the high-ranking um, officials in El Salvador, and when they described plunged. the things that were going on in El Salvador, 
it was extraordinary. And I was jealous. I was an American and I was jealous of another country. El Salvador is, is getting all the all this innovation. All these people are trying out new ways of using Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Tim, what do you mean all these and, people are, are trying it out? Where do you see that? Because the numbers that I'm looking at, its usage has actually plunged, even though the government has sort of made this full court effort to promote it. Well, that's not true. Um, the usage, what numbers usage are you looking is in, at? Uh, their government numbers. I don't know. I've been I've been looking at numbers. They are usage is exploding. The innovators are all going there because our our government is overregulating, and so we're losing innovation because we've got too much regulation. And um, and and this uh, system. You know, we're in a country here where. Um, two major stadiums are being promoted um, uh, by um, by cryptocurrency companies, yeah. FTX and, and Crypto.com, and neither of them can operate in the U.S. So we lost two major, huge opportunities there by being by overregulated. I then, think we've Tim, got a real problem think, in our country. Why do you think we are here? Because some would maybe look at those stadiums and all the enthusiasm behind cryptocurrencies as uh, sort of a warning, a red flag, perhaps. Why do you think that we're in this moment now where Bitcoin has dropped below 30,000 and a lot of those promises are being reexamined? And even institutional investors who don't necessarily believe in that technological promise are treating it just like an asset class to be traded. It's kind of lost those core principles. I think the speculators are looking at it that way. I think the believers are going to hang on. And that's where the um, divergence is going to happen, where where um, the the big highfalutin um, tech companies that are that have grown at all costs and a lot of costs, um, those big companies are going to get a lot of air taken out of them. Um, the markets for technology are going to fall. The speculators that came into Bitcoin um, are leaving now and have left. And now um, now it's really the believers and the believers are the hold hodlers. They are just going to hang on and add to their positions. And I, I, I think there will be a, a divergence. And I think that's going to be a really good thing for Bitcoin. Uh, certainly, uh, that's what uh, certainly Michael Saylor wrote uh, earlier in the week, Tim. Although I wonder, you know, the percentage of trade that's been retail has fallen uh, over the last number of years. And the argument goes that the institutions that now make up more of the trade uh, are more beholden to rates. They're more beholden to capital availability. And that's why the correlation to equities in the Nasdaq has gotten so high. Do you agree? Um, institutions haven't really um, embraced Bitcoin. In fact, uh, the banks have been pushing it off forever. They, they're concerned because they um, feel threatened by it. And so they, they have not embraced Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, but eventually, if they want to survive, they will. Tim, we could I, talk. I, I think uh... that that I think. No, I think institutions are looking and saying, oh, well, they're raising the interest rates, so we've got to get out of um, these higher priced stocks and we've got to look for more earnings. We we could talk Bitcoin all day, but let's not. Let's move beyond that. And maybe the thing that you're 
next most excited about outside of Bitcoin, outside of crypto? What are you doubling down on in this environment? Well, I have um, I've made a lot of uh, recent investments in in uh, the decentralization of everything. Uh, there's a company called Unstoppable that um, allows you you could have a, a John Crypto account and uh, and it can be free speech and it can't be controlled by Twitter, Facebook, whatever. They can't take you off. Uh, and that's very exciting. I, I believe that uh, decentralization is going to take uh, every, all of these industries are going to be transformed by the decentralization of everything. So I think that's a big deal. I think Elon has broken the logjam of innovation um, where all of a sudden there are all these innovators in, in rocketry and space, all these innovators in transportation. And I also think in healthcare, uh, it's all going digital. Um, your your uh, diagnosis will will generally be data driven, and your therapeutics will be using computational biochemistry. I think this is going to be a really interesting transformation of our world. I think we're we as humans are going to go through an anthropological leap. Okay, uh, and I think we've got um, a. A, a lot of major turmoil ahead for the next four or five years as um, as we move from the old guard to the new guard. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if we, are mostly old guard. Right. And, how we get there and, with these financial markets uh, for sure. But we appreciate you giving us that peek into the future. Tim Draper. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Time now for a news update. Seema Modi has that for us. Seema. Okay, John, good morning. Sales of previously owned homes are slowing and prices are rising. The National Association of Realtors reports this morning that sales fell 2.4% in April compared to March, hitting their lowest level seen since June of 2020. At the same time, the median price of a house sold in April was just over $391,000, a record high and up almost 15% from a year ago. Prices are being supported by a continuing shortage of houses available to buy. 32 years after McDonald's attracted big crowds with Moscow's first fast food restaurant, the burger chain has found a buyer for its Russian restaurants as it ends operations in that country due to the invasion in Ukraine. An existing franchisee is purchasing the 850 locations and will operate them under a different name without any golden arches. And take a look at Harley-Davidson stock, down 9% today. The motorcycle maker is suspending production of its bikes for two weeks, most of its bikes, due to a regulatory problem with a part supplied by another company. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. Meta shares have plunged since January, as you know, but the street's actually getting a little more bullish. We'll talk about that story later on this hour. A different social name feeling the love, though, Bumble, up more than 17% in the last week and in the green since late February, while the Nasdaq's down 15%. Don't go anywhere. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. 
I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. One area of the market that is holding up this week would be video game stocks. Steve Kovac joins us with the latest. Steve, the word here is relative. Yeah, relative. Uh, So we have uh, three gaming stocks that I've been watching the past week, and they're all holding up uh, just pretty well as the rest of tech tumbles. Uh, Roblox yesterday up nearly 2%, and EA was slightly green. Meanwhile, you have Take-Two, which was effectively flat. Let's just call that a windy, and uh, given how the rest of the market looked. And all three are on pace to be positive this month of May. Um, Some interesting themes emerging uh, since these names reported earnings over the last two weeks. They all missed estimates, but investors are optimistic now that growth has leveled off from the pandemic and comps are starting to look better. Roblox is also rising after executives spoke about advertising plans. Brands are flooding into the Roblox metaverse. Uh, Just this week, we had Gap uh, launched a virtual store in Roblox. And then there's mobile gaming. That's the fastest uh, segment of the gaming industry. You have EA launching the mobile version of Apex Legends. That's what's hit game. And Take-Two, of course, just got uh, the sale of Zynga, or the acquisition of Zynga, rather, approved uh, just a few minutes ago. And a report out today, Zynga is actually piloting with TikTok to put mobile games in that app. So that's a huge market for them. Um, And then finally, Dee, I'll just end on this. I was reading a note yesterday from Baird that said gaming can really withstand any recession as people are kind of driven back at home and start spending more in games, which is a really good entertainment value. Best bang for your buck. Yes, Steve. um, I I apologize in advance. You said metaverse, so I'm slightly (laughs) triggered. Uh, Roblox is down 75% from its 52-week highs, and you say people are flooding into the metaverse. Brands are flooding in. What what does flooding mean exactly, given where it is? It's trading near the levels where it was at the beginning of the month. Yeah, so it's 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 way off from its highs last fall, John. You're totally right about that. But here's here's what's making people optimistic about Roblox is. They have a huge audience. They have over 50 million people playing this game. It reminds me of the early days of Facebook when they had so many users and didn't know how to monetize them. So you have the CEO, David, talking about uh, putting ads in there and really working with brands that we see almost every week, a new announcement of a new brand entering the Roblox metaverse and trying to uh, meet people where they are. So, you know, it's sure the stock is way down, but a lot of people use this game every day. And, of course, the advertising dollars and the brands are going to follow, and we're seeing that. Yeah, in a, in a quarter full of misses, you did have DAUs and bookings for Roblox come in in line, which was a nice surprise. For sure. uh, Steve, thanks. thanks. Uh, Steve Kovac. Uh, meantime, Apple shares coming off their worst day since 2020. Stocks now on pace for its eighth straight weekly decline in the worst month since February of 2020. That said, the average price target on the street, 189 So a lot of the sell side still counting on upside ahead. Dow's down 250. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Almost half of all NASDAQ stocks are down 50% from their 52-week highs. And while investors in the public markets might be feeling the pain, well, private equity firms licking their chops. They've got a lot of cash burning a hole in their pockets. Frank Holland has the breakdown for us. Frank? 
Well, here there, John. Private equity firms have more than $772 billion in dry powder or funds not allocated for a particular investment. And many analysts believe we could see a growing wave of cloud, enterprise, and cyber acquisitions by PE firms, even after about $50 billion in deals over the last year or so, with Toma Bravo seeing the most activity, Vista with one of the bigger deals. Bain says tech buyouts have become about 31% of the buyout market. Spoke with a PE firm yesterday. They say Many companies are nearing a moment of capitulation where they're going to just have to accept that the value of their company is lower than it was just a few months ago. So Cowan says Zendesk is a likely target for private equity, largely because the customer support cloud company actually turned down a $16 billion offer from a consortium of PE firms earlier this year. Cowan estimates about $20 billion can make it happen this time around. Forward PE of 128, but only down 7% year to date. Wedbush says Veronis is a hot stock for PE acquisition. It focuses on data security. Shares are up 7% over the past week, but still 66% off of its high and trading at 200 times forward earnings. But Dan Ives says Google's acquisition of Mandian has really increased the interest in cybersecurity. And KeyBank says Alteryx is another potential target. Alteryx focuses on data analytics and has a relatively strong customer base, according to KeyBank, but has long-term growth challenges, making a sale now potentially attractive. Back over to you, Carl. Uh, it's a good setup, Frank. Thank you, uh, Frank Holland. We're going to stick with this theme and talk about who else might be an M&A target in the software space. Our next guest has highlighted names like Zoom, DocuSign, Dropbox as some candidates. Joining us this morning, RBC analyst Rishi Jaluria. Rishi, you did a piece a few weeks ago. Some of these are uh, strategic takeouts. Some might be private equity. Can you talk about the rationale? And if you can, which names seem the most likely? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Look, I think the rationale is, is the, you know, uh, exactly as, as, as the intro kind of kicked off, um, a lot of these names are off super high from their peaks. We're, we're heading into a, a period with, you know, high inflation, high interest rates, worries about recession. And, and I think more and more, the boards of directors have to take, um, you know, the, the, the uh, acquisition seriously, right, or, or, or offer seriously from private equity. And at the same time, I think some of the larger platform players, you know, you're, you're, Salesforce's and Microsoft's and Oracle's and SAP's of the world um, are, are, are looking at some of these multiples uh, coming down so much and, and saying, hey, this is a great time to start to consolidate some IT spend uh, and really take advantage of the major pullback that we're seeing here. Um, so, you know, when, when we think about like what makes sense as, as acquisition candidates, I think there's, there's, there's a slew uh, across the board when it comes to both strategic and, and private equity. Uh, but really the common theme that, that we're seeing is either companies that have had major pullbacks and those that would be just stronger as part of a larger platform. Dropbox is a name that, that we think, you know, Drew has taken the company really far, but you know, if Dropbox were, were owned by uh, Adobe or owned by Salesforce, we think there's a lot more they could do with the asset. Uh, we think, you know, New Relic, uh, I'm actually just at the New Relic conference right now, is a company that private equity could be looking at. Uh, Coupa, um, you know, another one that, that private equity is definitely taking a look at. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, Zoom and DocuSign, big beneficiaries of, of the pandemic and, and remote work. Uh, but they've pulled back to such low levels and traded such cheap multiples on profitability um, that we think they're very attractive to some big acquirers, namely Salesforce. Right. Now, you mentioned some of those potential buyers. Some of them do have some outstanding deals that have yet to close. Does that preclude further bids? And I wonder, from a regulatory standpoint, has that picture gotten easier or harder? 
Uh, yeah, look, I, I don't think that precludes uh, those deals from happening, right? I mean, you know, my, Microsoft, uh, you know, made a huge acquisition with Nuance, and while that deal was going on, made the offer to go by uh, Activision, which is the largest tech M&A deal ever, um, right? And, and, you know, I, I know Salesforce has their hands full with um, uh, Slack, but, but uh, you know, these multiples come in where they are. Salesforce is a very acquisitive company. Um, so I don't think that prevents it from happening. Now, in terms of the regulatory environment, you know, it, it probably has gotten slightly more difficult, but I, I think the, the, the thing that we've seen is um, the regulatory bodies don't seem to care as much about enterprise software as they do about consumer technology. So while, you know, the regulators will come down on, you know, Facebook or, or, or Google or Amazon trying to buy someone, um, that doesn't seem to be the case with, with anything related to enterprise software. Uh, and especially if it's someone like Salesforce or, or, or SAP or Oracle buying, you know, a, a mid-cap software name, I don't think that uh, regulatory is going to be a major hurdle to making that happen. Hey, Rishi, it's, it's Steve. Uh, why do you think the likes of Zoom and DocuSign are attractive? What do you think that acquirers would be buying? Is it the technology? Is it the users? Because it feels like a lot of the bigger tech companies are developing it themselves and can kind of sell to their existing base of customers. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think you are buying a combination of the technology and, and, and the penetration that they have within large organizations, as well as the ubiquitous nature of those tools. Um, you know, DocuSign, sure, a lot of other companies have tried, namely Adobe, uh, right? They've made an acquisition in this space long ago. Um, you know, their e-signature product is significantly smaller than DocuSign's and growing slower, uh, right? So clearly there is a technological edge there. Uh, and, and I think this would be really valuable for Salesforce to embed it within, you know, the CRM system and especially in a hybrid selling world. Uh, Zoom, you know, yes, Microsoft is getting really aggressive with teams. But look, I, I still think Zoom has the best video conferencing technology out there. And if it gets owned by a larger company that has the ability to bundle in video as part of other collaboration solutions, I think that that increases Zoom's competitiveness against Microsoft. So I really think it's, it's the, the great technology, the good customer base, and then the ability to cross-sell what is best-in-class technology alongside other solutions. I want to mention uh, major indices are at session highs. The Dow is now off just a quarter of a percent. S&P has turned positive fractionally, and the NASDAQ is up better than 1%. R Rishi, uh, if you're a Zoom, a Coupa, a Dropbox, founder-led why would you want to embrace P.E. in this environment? And if you wouldn't, should public market investors think of non-founder-led companies as more likely P.E. targets? Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely a fair case you're making, right? I think founder-led companies, especially where there is a dual-class share structure, are, are unlikely P.E. candidates uh, in the interim. I think it would be uh, you know, a company where it has been um, uh, taken over by, by someone else is, is in charge. And, and, you know, they're going to be more open to um, a sale. And there isn't a dual class share structure. Uh, I do think, though, however, a, a, a Coupa or, or a Dropbox or a Zoom would be open to strategic, right? I mean, we've seen, you know, some, some great founder-led companies like Slack uh, be open to being taken out strategically at the right price and with the ability to maintain autonomy for the product, right? Stuart has a very big role at, at Salesforce. Uh, as the head of, uh, of Slack. And I think, you know, that sort of promise makes strategic more likely, but absolutely, you know, to your point, that, that's why we look at, you know, a company like New Relic or, or Fastly even as being potential private equity candidates at these levels because they're no longer founder-led. Rishi, that interview is exactly what we try to do here. Uh, very specific, uh, rational, and actionable. Appreciate it so much. Mm -hmm. Rishi Jaluria so of uh, RBC. 
And speaking of software, keep an eye on Synopsys today. It is the top gainer on the NASDAQ 100. Unlike Cisco, beating estimates on the top and bottom lines and issuing an upbeat forecast. Shares popping double digits on the news. As for the broader markets, they are also popping. The NASDAQ is now up nearly 1.2%. The S&P has turned positive, crawling out of bear market territory. Uh, the Dow slightly lower by about 120 points. We are back into Don't Go Away. Meta shares have plunged this year amid the sell-off. The stock's been cut in half from its 52-week highs. And, but now the street's getting a bit more bullish. Our Julia Borston's got more on that today. Hi, Julia. Good morning to you, Carl. That's right. Shares of Meta are moving slightly higher today. They're up about 1%, but the stock is still down over 40% this year compared to the Nasdaq's 27% decline. Now, looking back over the past decade since Meta, formerly Facebook, went public, yesterday was its 10-year anniversary of its IPO. In that decade, the stock is up about 400% compared to the Nasdaq's run of 311%. But the company now faces a range of headwinds, from concerns of an ad recession to targeting challenges, all contributing to slowing revenue growth. Also, the fact that they're losing billions of dollars as Meta invests heavily in its metaverse projects. But that's not stopping Wall Street from being bullish on Meta shares. 73% of analysts currently have a buy rating on the stock. Barclays just today issuing a note saying, quote, we think Facebook sets up as the best long idea right now in the group simply because estimates are likely to head upward in coming prints, in contrast to others in the group referring to the tech sector. Meanwhile, Bank of America noting that despite the risk of a recession, it still thinks Meta is a good long-term play, saying, quote, we think both Meta and Alphabet have the most potential investment spending and bonus accrual flexibility that could enable the companies to grow earnings in a moderate recession scenario. The stock is relatively cheap, too. If you're looking at the price-to-earnings ratio, it's under 15 compared to the entire NASDAQ, which has a B ratio of about 27. Coming up later today at 1 p.m. Eastern, Meta is holding its first-ever WhatsApp business event, where it's going to be outlining the business opportunity for messaging on WhatsApp, and Mark Zuckerberg will be speaking at the keynote, so we hope to learn more about whether that platform can be a real revenue driver for parent company Meta. Guys, back over to you. You know, Julia, we just had the 10-year anniversary of the IPO. We were talking about the day you and I were in the parking lot as that uh, stock went public. But I'm looking at the chart, and it really hasn't gone very far price-wise for two months. Uh, you could argue that it got a lot of the selling done before uh, the pain came to the broader NASDAQ. Yeah, I think there's this question of sort of how is Facebook slash Meta going to ch manage its various challenges, right? So we know that they've made progress when it comes to those Apple operating system changes that limited their ability to do targeting. We know that they see more opportunity when it comes to making money from reels, but there's still so much uncertainty right now. And I think this next earnings call for Meta is going to be particularly important. It seemed like there was kind of a shift in the language we heard from Mark Zuckerberg in the last earnings in which he was talking more about wanting to be actionable, to, to manage expenses and also figure out ways to drive revenue growth now while he acknowledged that he has this 2030 plan of the metaverse. So it, it seems like he's more sensitive now to, to the business demands of this challenging, potentially recessionary environment. All right. Julia, thank you. And now, if you're hungry for more tech check content, don't miss 
of Tech Tech Plus live stream at 2.30 Eastern today on ideas for bridging the wage gap in tech with Olympic gold winning all-star soccer player Megan Rapinoe, fresh off of a historic and successful fight for equal pay in her industry. I might just rip my shirt off in the commercial break to celebrate, even though it's a different player. Anyway, we're back in a moment. Let's get a gut check on Grab. The stock is surging today, now up some 40, nearly 42%. Before you get too excited, that is only a dollar, which shows you how far that stock has really come down. But the ride-hailing and delivery company reporting a jump in revenue as the business rebounds from the pandemic slowdown. Plus, Grab reporting narrowing losses, so a step closer towards achieving better profitability. Though, as I mentioned, it has not been an easy road for the stock. It is still down 70% since going public at the end of 2021. We are back in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Nasdaq has clawed its way back into the green. S&P about flat. Nasdaq up a little less than a percent. Top gainers, Datadog, Lucid, Synopsys, Okta, Atlassian, DocuSign, Zoom. Some of those high growth, high multiple names doing the best they can today uh, and the best overall after yesterday's sharp sell-off day. And some news from FTX. That's a company known for crypto trading. It will be getting into stock trading. They say they want to bring crypto and equities under one roof, explicitly saying they were inspired by Robinhood. Remember that FTX founder and CEO Sam Bankman-Fried just bought a large personal stake in Robinhood. So the timing here is interesting, guys. The other interesting angle, they will not rely on payment for order flow for revenue. Remember, that was very controversial with Hood. They say that stock trading will not be a revenue generator. For now, it looks, Carl, like they're going to subsidize it by relying on profits from crypto. I wonder how that works out when crypto fees are getting lower. Yeah, interesting. Uh, no, no, no payment for order flow is a slightly different uh, strategy. One more thing, D, before we go, is Tesla uh, booted from the S&P 500 ESG index as part of its annual update. That index is uh, saying the electric car makers, quote, lack of a low carbon strategy and codes of business conduct affected its ranking. Elon Musk did turn to Twitter after that removal. He called the index a scam and that it has been, quote, weaponized by phony social justice warriors. According to data exclusively provided to CNBC by partners at just capital, Tesla ranks 608 out of the Russell 1000 companies they cover. Their environmental ranking, which factors in sustainability, climate change and more, is 385. And in terms of a climate commitment, Tesla doesn't actually have one. Among the names still on the list are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and even oil and gas giant ExxonMobil. By the way, Tesla today, the low 694, uh, roughly the same price where Tesla shares were when it was initially added uh, to the S&P 500 back in December of 2020. So we'll get AMAT tonight and DEC and Ross Stories and VF. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.